6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 7 and 8. So Lot had no pleasure. He was not at peace. He was not in the Lord's rest. Was he saved? At least twice. Abraham's 318 troops saved him once in the physical sense. Abraham's intercessory prayer may have had something to do with the second time. Genesis 18, the whole haggle that I kid about with, uh, with uh, uh, Abraham and, and the Lord was an intercessory prayer, probably the first intercessory prayer in the Torah. I don't think it was because of that prayer that Lot was saved, because I think the mission, the angels apparently had that mandate en route, but uh, I, I won't put things in order in that regard, because he knows what we're going to pray before we pray it, so you can, you can, you can chase that one down. But, um, but notice what else comes right after this. What This occasion of Lot gives rise to Peter's ninth verse here, 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And he goes on to make his points. Interesting that Lot, with all this adverse comment on his walk, is regarded in the New Testament as one who is saved. And indeed he was, literally in terms of being removed from Sodom and Gomorrah, for our learning. I personally believe that uh, Lot was saved the same way you and I are, by the grace of God and his mercy. Now, for those of us that have an imperfect walk, and I think that includes more than 51% of us here tonight, it certainly includes 100% of the people on this side of the platform, meet. For those of you that have an imperfect walk like I have, I take enormous comfort from Lot. I look at Paul and others and get a little humbled. I look at Lot and I figure, well, maybe that's a benchmark I at least can beat a little bit, okay? Um, but there's great comfort because we're justified and we're saved not by our righteousness, by, by his mercy and grace. And that's what Lot's all about. And it's interesting to me because this is a spiritual issue here. God is seeking to save even one. This is not just limited to Genesis 19. Let's turn to Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel is prophesying the last two verses of chapter 22, 30 and 31. Ezekiel says as follows, or speaking for the Lord. He says, I sought for a man among them that they should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I sought for a man, singular, couldn't find any. Verse 31, Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I, rec uh, have I uh, recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. Okay, and I won't get into the context of Ezekiel's point with Israel and all that. That's the point of the principle, though, is interesting, is that God is looking for one and couldn't find it. So, kavum, right? That's Ezekiel. Let's take a look at Jeremiah. That's a review thing. We've just been in Jeremiah recently. Let's kick over to Jeremiah 
about uh, 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now, and know, and seek in its broad places if ye can find a man, singular. If there be any that executeth justice and seeketh the truth, and I will pardon her. Interesting. Lord doesn't seem to require much, does he? When you read the scripture, you find that his posture with Sodom and Gomorrah is not unique. That's his way. If there's one righteous, he will spare the city for the sake of that righteous. That's why when I hear in the book of Revelation, that's why when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I pointed you not unto wrath, but unto salvation. I believe the church will not see, but from a distance, the wrath of God. I believe the church will be extracted from the world scene. In the book of Revelation, we have idioms that are used very precisely for various groups of people. And the main scenario in the book of Revelation has to do with a people called the earth dwellers. They that dwell upon the earth. Again, they that dwell upon the earth. The earth dwellers. You and I are not earth dwellers. And uh, the earth dwellers are blaspheming, right? And what is the sin in Israel for blasphemy? Stoning. What happens in the book of Revelation? Stones. A couple hundred pounds each. That's a hailstorm. Um, but it's interesting how the idiom is consistent with what God has premised in the Torah. Stoning is the punishment for blasphemy, and that's what the earth gets. Now, okay, that's the one scene. On the other hand, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 so we understand another principle. You know, this is all review. I'm sure this is familiar to you, but I think it helps build a perspective here. And it's what you're building on. What was Lot building on? Nothing too firm here. There's only one foundation, verse 11, that no man, which, uh, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation you can build on. Anything else is a waste. And, and he goes on to describe this in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 3, 12, Paul says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. What's not obvious in the structure, there's two groups of things. Those that are combustible, those that are not combustible. It's a little confusing to some of us because you don't think of gold, silver, and precious stones as being a desirable, that sounds materialistic. Paul's point is, is that they're non-combustible in contrast to the wood, hay, stubble, which is combustible. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. Right? Half is going to burn, half doesn't. That's, the, that's sort of the rhetorical idiom that Paul is using. If any man's work abide which he is built on, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. So depending on what you're building on, it's going to be tested by the living God. And if it stands, you'll get a reward. If not, your works, the result, your fruits will be lost. Got nothing to do with your status. Because look at the way that verse 15 finishes. But he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. The analogy is you made it, you made it as a refugee. You're in heaven with just the... I was going to say the clothes are in your back, but that ain't any good either because there's filthy rags. You've got to be reclothed with his righteousness. So I can't play that model too far. But you, you don't have anything else. And you've heard me talk about Luke 16 and things. You can't take it with you, but you can. The way you take it with you is to send it up ahead. Your works on this earth that are based upon leading of the Spirit for Jesus Christ will offer a reward, and that will be sent up ahead. If you're going to travel to a foreign country, you change your currency at a favorable rate. And you do that here by using your opportunity, your talents, whatever the Lord puts, whatever resources the Lord puts in your way for his kingdom. And that will generate a reward you can't possibly lose. Anything else is 
but uh, dross. That's what this really says. And again, Lot's in a good example because he left Gomorrah. He was saved from Sodom. He was in a cave, whatever. He, there's an aftermath here that I haven't got into yet. Um, it's pretty grisly aftermath, incidentally, because they hide in the cave. He's miserable, and, he's a, and his daughter's now not having any, you know, their would-be guys or, uh, as they make ashes of themselves, but that's probably a bad crack, isn't it? <laughs> I'll hear about that later. I'm sorry. Um, so what do they do? They, they resort to incest with their father, Lot, and the two daughters give rise to the Moabites and the Ammonites. And it's a rather grim denouement to the whole, the whole scene. Okay, why did I get into all of this? Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Jesus is in verse 22 on describing his second coming. Says the disciples, the days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days, uh, days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. They shall say unto you, See here or there, go not after them or follow them, for as the lightning out of the one part of heaven shineth unto the other part of heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day, in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now he goes on in verse 26 says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And he's speaking generally and specifically. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Now his point isn't that those are wrong things. There's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong with drinking. In the context of this saying here. There's nothing wrong with marrying. See, what he's listing here is not the sins. It's business as usual is what he's saying. And they were given marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. As it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is speaking of the conditions on the earth at the time, and it'll come by surprise. Now, he says something interesting in verse 31. In that day, let him that shall be on the housetop and his stuff in the house not come down to take it away. Let him also that is in the field not return. And then verse 32, simple little admonition. Remember Lot's wife. Who? So this isn't some quaint translation problem. This isn't some little nook and cranny of the Torah we're talking about. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ expects us to examine Lot's wife, her predicament, her error, and learn from it. What was Lot's wife's error? She was married to the world. She couldn't let go. Here an angel was intervening, taking her by the hand to pull her outside the city limits. Didn't get the message. Clinging too tightly to the world, the flesh, the things that uh, were shortly to be destroyed. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. And then I love the next three verses just as a physicist. I tell you that in that night there shall be two men in one bed, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding together, one shall be taken, the other left. And two men shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. I love that. Because the two men in the bed, I assume it's the middle of the night. The two women shall be grinding the meal. They did that at the beginning of the day. The first thing you gals did in that era was to get the meal and grind, up, grind enough meal for the day. Early morning chore. And two men shall be in the field. That's a midday job. So we've got night, morning, and day, and it all happens like that. 
Did the Lord know the world is round? You bet. Interesting study in astronomy coming right there. Okay. No uh, Ptolemaic cosmology there. Strictly Copernican. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, now, let's talk a little bit more before we get too far afield about Sodom and Gomorrah spiritually. What was going on there? The answer to that is in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. God tells us some things how that Sodom and Gomorrah are held spiritually accountable. I think we could probably presume that Lot attempted to witness to them, but he was obviously very ineffective. But there's another witness that they had, and that is summarized in Romans chapter 1. I'll pick it up about verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not hold the truth, hold in the sense of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. In other words, the heathen are accountable. The heathen are accountable. Why? That's what Paul deals with in Romans 1. Anytime you have a hang-up on, gee, what about the whatever, some pagan this, that, or anything, Romans 1 is your answer. Study it carefully. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Heavy stuff. It isn't gospel tracts or a midnight preacher while you're driving that condemns them. It's far broader, more universal than some specific incident. It's his whole creation holds them accountable without excuse. Now, where do they go wrong? Verse 20 on on. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not. Okay? They once knew God. Everyone did. Everyone does. But they failed to glorify him. They, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the progress. You can take these verses and just diagram the process. They knew God. They glorified him not. They were not thankful. They then, as a result of that, they become vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became morons. That's what the word means. If you don't believe that, take the Rankest, the, the most senior intellectuals you know that are agnostic, and watch what they embrace as a belief. You stand back, it's laughable. It's really interesting. Verse 23, and they change and, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And what's the response to all of this? Wherefore God also gave them up. They gave God up, right? They knew God, they gave him up. What's God's response? To give them up. To what? To uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Oh, really? To dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Gee, do you mean to think, that you mean to tell me that there's a, a link between sexual perversion and a denial of the living God? You bet. What's my authority? Right here. It isn't just that they're bad or heinous. They're specifically a form of rebellion against these truths. Moving on. 
who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to what? Intellectual debate, forensic apologetics and things? No, vile affections. For even their women did exchange the natural use for that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was fitting. Heavy stuff. Now, if there is anyone in the audience that happens to be or have had a homosexual experience, you're welcome, because God can deliver you from that just as he delivered us all from all kinds of things. So if I'm coming across anyone here offensively, well, praise God, the Holy Spirit may use that. I love what Billy Graham said. Asked, asked once if a homosexual can become a pastor. He says, absolutely. He can confess and repent of his sin just like all of us have of our sins. So we're speaking here not against some group. We're speaking against a sin that God hates. And that is symptomatic of a deeper problem. Moving on, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Do you see the, the parallelism here? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to the knowledge they preferred, which is a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not seemly, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, insolent, proud, blot boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, now by the way, if you've been comfortable up till now, <laughs> the last phrase gets us all, but have pleasure in them that do them. I'm guilty. I love watching violent things on television. You know, the Clint Eastwood this or the Bronson this or whatever. That's wrong. My wife tries to tell me that, and I just don't listen. I love that stuff. But it's, what is it? You know, it's murder, violence, and so forth. Eh? I'm fond of one scene that really is interesting. It was in a movie where there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of Westerners, guys coming in, breaking up a camp, shooting everything, and they're killing people and stuff, and you don't mind it. There's a little dog, and they shoot the dog. And yet the whole audience goes, oh, like up till then, you know, there's women and men getting shot and killed. So you sort of, that's all part of the thing, right? And his little dog, his pet of the script, plowy. You know, the whole audience is shocked by the fact they shot this dog. So candidly, the shoe pinches here. Because I, I, I have an appetite entertainment that I've got to reexamine in the light of the Holy Spirit. It's wrong. My wife can be pleased with my own tonight. I finally got the message. Very interesting that the most profound philosophical insights will not result or preserve you from indulgences of the flesh. Recognition is not a cure. The highest goal of philosophy or ethics or morality in a philosophical sense 
at best can only give you a consciousness, not a not a, 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 a the power to overcome this, only by the Holy Spirit. Anyway, Romans 1. Men who once knew God, failed to glorify him, became vain in their reasoning, had their hearts darkened, so God gives them up to uncleanness, vile affections, and reprobate mind. Same issues covered in John 12. Remember, Lot's wife is the message today. Now, I'm going to do one thing. We have a few minutes left. Turn back to Jude. We've spent, <laughs> we've spent a little bit of time on Jude 7. We've taken three examples, 5, 6, and 7. Israel, the angels of sin, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're sort of summarized in verse 8. So we're actually going to slip another verse in before we are out of our time. Verse 8. In like manner, also these filthy dreamers, meaning these, the present ones that Jude's talking about. These, he's, he just refer, went through three Old Testament historical examples, but he's bringing you back to now the church. In like manner, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speaking evil of dignities. Three things emerge as these ancient sins, sins from the wilderness wanderings, sins of the angels that sinned in Genesis 6, and the sins of, of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14 and 18 and 19. What are these sins? Defiling the flesh, they set at naught uh, dominion, and they rail at dignities. Three things, defiling the flesh. They walk after their own lust. Peter says that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Remember, in the last days shall scoffers come walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Talk about the second coming. For all things continue as they were for me. And he links that to a belief in evolution. A belief in prophecy is antithetical to a belief in early. Both, both imply creation and second coming imply God intervening in the history of man. Of course he does. So part of the reason there's such a commitment to evolution on the part of secular humanism is that's an undermining of any concept of a second coming of Jesus Christ. If you want defiling the flesh, the classical list is in Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20. That's a list that's just as grisly as the one I just went through in Romans 1. I won't take the time. Those of you that want to complete your notes can chase down Galatians 5, 19 and 20. Jesus Christ in Matthew 15 says, Out of the heart come those things which defile a man. Same list. Defiling the flesh. What's the second characteristic of these, these uh, apostates? They set at naught dominion. What does that mean? They deny authority. They certainly deny the ultimate authority. They deny our Master and Lord. We saw that in verse 4 of Jude. No man can say that he is Lord by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, so he can run to that one. But the ultimate authority is in Philippians chapter 2, where every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord. Now that's in the ultimate spiritual sense. We can, we can bring this right on down. Set at naught dominion. God sets up authorities. Even Daniel in Babylon was subject to King Nebuchadnezzar. And because he was, I think he was converted in chapter 4 of Daniel. He wrote the, Nebuchadnezzar wrote chapter 4, book of Daniel. God sets up authorities. One of the characteristics of these apostates is that they will rail. Now, what do you mean rail? Ancient word. Speak evil of, revile dignities. They're iconoclasts. Now, they speak in judgment of authority. Now, if we speak in judgment of authority, we're running huge risks. Huge risks. Let me give you an example of one that I mean. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we have one of the 50 titles of Satan. The accuser of the brethren. Right? That's the way 
Revelation 12.10 defines the name Satan. He's our accuser. Great. When you accuse the brethren, are you doing his work? Dang it. So when you hear a, you know, a, a rumor about this or so-and-so did that or whatever, and it's a brother you're talking about, boy, are you in trouble. Because whether you realize it or not, and it's going to happen to all of us, it'll sneak up on you, and you suddenly discover you are Satan's messenger. Heavy stuff. Every time you open your mouth against one of God's chosen vessels, you're in deep trouble if it's to anybody other than him in privacy. Now, if they're going to speak evil of dignities, you can just scale this from local arena all the way through to the top. Who is the highest dignity that the world will speak evil of? Jesus Christ, you got it. And that, you know, the ultimate dignity and the ultimate... And who, of course, as the, an official state religion of the United States, secular humanism, does it attack? The deity, mission, origin, and accomplishment, achievement, commitment of none other than our Lord and Savior. Jude's message to us tonight is to remember Sodom. Strange, strange thing. Remember Sodom. Remember Lot's wife. This isn't a distant historical oddity or a dramatic scene for some high-budget biblical epic film. It's an event that actually happened in history that the Holy Spirit has called to our attention again and again and again, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ points us to, to learn some lessons for our spiritual walk, yours and mine. Not the unbelieving world that's chasing some carnal entertainment. But you and I, as we grapple with the day-to-day -day business of being a Christian in a Christian walk. What are the lessons here? That's your challenge to read and have the Lord speak to you on, because this is written for our learning. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.